Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, with New Books in Architecture, a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line. Uh, my email is plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. I'd like to welcome you to today's show. Uh, the book we will be discussing is Cultural Landscapes of South Asia, Studies in Heritage, Conservation, and Management. Edited by Kapila Silva and Amita Sinha, published by Routledge in 2017. Uh, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having us on the show. Uh, let's start with uh, Kapila. Could you tell us about yourself and your educational background? Uh, sure. Um, thank you very much for having us uh, for this pod- podcast today. Um, so um, I am a I'm an architect, and uh, um, right now I teach at the uh, School of Architecture and Design uh, at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, I'm originally from Sri Lanka, so I did my uh, bachelor's in architecture and master's in architecture uh, in Sri Lanka, and then uh, also I have a, uh, a postgraduate diploma in architectural conservation. Uh, so I practice in Sri Lanka and taught at the university over there too. And then uh, in 1998, I came to USA, uh, to the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee to pursue my doctorate in architecture. And uh, and having completed that, um, I taught at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee uh, and then uh, later joined the University of Kansas um, so I have been here in, in Kansas uh, now for about uh, 12 years. Oh, wow. And so, uh, uh, Amita, how about you? Um, yes, um, I am also an architect. My architectural education, undergraduate education was in India. And I came to the U.S. in 1983. And I got my master's in architecture from Virginia Tech and my Ph.D. in architecture from University of California, Berkeley. And then I joined um as a tenure-track faculty member at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the Department of Landscape Architecture. Um, I taught in uh, the department for 29 years, and I retired last year, um, and I have uh, worked um, uh, on uh, um, cultural landscapes and heritage issues um, in in India. Uh, that was my major research agenda while I was teaching, and it continues um, as I um, uh, uh, work uh, further. Uh, I was a Fulbright scholar uh, twice, uh, once in 2009 in New Delhi, uh, Indian National Trust for Art and Cultural Heritage, and more recently last year in the Indian Institute of Technology, Kharagpur, which was actually my alma mater. Oh, well, so what was, uh, we'll go back and forth, what was your motivations for writing this book? Yeah, so um, uh in the course of my teaching uh, and research at the University of Illinois, uh, I did a number of projects with my students on heritage sites 
the most famous one being the Taj Mahal uh, in Agra, and then uh, Varanasi Ghats, which are iconic sites. And um, so my research um, projects, um, they are grounded in this fieldwork and developing uh, uh, landscape planning and uh, design and management pro- proposals with students and faculty. Um, Kapila and I presented um, uh, our work in several conferences. And um, in 2013, uh, I'd organized a conference, a one-day symposium at the University of Illinois. Uh, and Kapila uh, and several others who had written for the volume uh, presented papers. And we decided that we should bring this together between the covers of a book. And we approached Rutledge um, because we wanted to look at... Um, not only differences, uh, but more importantly, similarities in the way that the six countries of the subcontinent have a shared heritage um, and also shared, um, you know, values um, as well as, you know, the institutions and the regulatory policies are similar because of their colonial background. Uh, Yeah, the... the, um... As Amta mentioned, that uh, in the South Asian region, um, the conservation of architectural and cultural heritage uh, has been um, kind of regulated by uh, the policies established by the uh, colonial administrations uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries and even early 20th century. Uh, and the the the, even after the independence in these countries, uh, the uh, heritage management uh, has been driven purely through these kind of Eurocentric colonial uh, frameworks. And, uh, and these frameworks uh, do not necessarily address the complexities of cultural heritage in terms of creation of heritage and maintenance of heritage, use of heritage, the meaning of heritage, etc. So uh, in addition to that, um, in 1972, uh, UNESCO started the World Heritage Program uh, uh, identifying outstanding um, uh, cultural heritage uh, sites and also natural heritage sites uh, around the world and and uh, and giving these uh, places a uh, world heritage status however the unesco program uh, has uh, also been based on a eurocentric understanding of uh, what cultural heritage is mostly uh, thinking about kind of isolated monuments uh, and some archaeological sites uh, so, uh, so when it came to now, now the, that kind of an understanding and framework would work for mostly for European and colonial uh, places and countries, uh, but not necessarily in the in the in the non-Western traditions. Uh, so, uh, eventually, UNESCO also recognized that there's this kind of very complex uh, way uh, uh, cultural heritage has been understood in different parts of the world. So in t- 1992, uh, UNESCO uh, introduced this idea called cultural uh, cultural landscape uh, approach to, to understanding um, uh, various locations around the world uh, and, and developing a, a and, and, and promoting a kind of very holistic kind of framework where you uh, see uh, the, the human-made uh, places uh, 
and uh, natural uh, places go together uh, uh, beyond uh, simple monuments and understanding the place in a more holistic sense. So what we also realized is that that's a much more useful framework when you uh, look at the uh, cultural heritage in um, in South Asia, uh, not only to understand the, the complexities uh, and sophistication of uh, uh, those places, but also how to uh, manage, preserve, and continue uh, those cultural cultural heritage places. So, um, so that was uh, that was also the reason why we wanted to uh, focus on South Asia and to talk about cultural landscape approach and how to understand um, how to look at these places from a much more holistic frame of uh, view. Uh, well, I'm going to say for for our audience to know that um, I have visited India and um, north, south, east, and west, and um, I didn't make it to Sri Lanka, but I got close um, <laughs> and uh, right across the water, right across the pond there. Um, but uh, wow, uh, the impact from, from each state was just, uh, uh, it was interesting and it was outstanding. And um, uh, just the language, food, everything, how different it is. So um, I did find that um, while we studied historical sites, uh, of course, in school, that um, we didn't have a lot of uh, education about South Asia, which is why I was interested in your book. Uh, well, how do you think that uh, this book uh, can be applied to designers or what do they need to know about South Asia that they can learn from you all to apply here to the U.S.? That's a good question. Um, South Asia uh, is a very diverse uh, uh land and um, it has you know multi-layered you know history um, and it goes back this history goes back to to really a prehistoric time um, uh, we call it indic you know the very ancient times uh, and that's what you know kind of unites i think um, uh, the six countries that's a cultural substratum uh, now i think what the united states um the audience and readers of the book here can learn from the book uh, from our edited volume is that um, uh, local cultures and regional cultures are very important in placemaking and that one has to be really, you know, sensitive to that in, um, uh, in developing programs for heritage conservation in policymaking. So um, landscape, uh, you know, is, not just a view, but it is a cultural construct, and it really reflects, you know, um, uh, the the cultures and subcultures, um, values, uh, and belief system. So, for instance, in North America, um, the uh, Native American cultures um, had a different relationship than um, than 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 the European cultures with the land um, and with the rivers and with the vegetation. Um, and this relationship was based on harmony um, with nature. And I think that is what really I see um, in the ancient cultures of of the Indian subcontinent, which have persisted, I think, subsisted uh, even to the 20, 20th and 21st century. So um, I think in uh, in. Uh, in uh, in the U.S., uh, as National Park Service and other organizations manage uh, national parks, and as um, practitioners work on um, uh, urban landscapes, um, the emphasis 
is uh, should be on ecological processes, but also on landscapes as cultural constructs, and that includes, you know, being very sensitive to social processes. So, uh, um, as uh, Amita mentioned, that um, one of the things, one of the interesting things about uh, kind of South Asian uh, locations, uh, cities, and 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 other villages, and 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 larger geographic landscape, is that this kind of multi-layered uh, aspect of it. It's um, it's uh, multiple histories, uh, multiple ethnic groups. Um, multiple religious uh, uh, groups or religious uh, identities. Um, and then it's it's not only buildings and towns, it's also the, the way the natural landscape has been integrated into the human habitations. And, and, uh, and, and multiple meanings that people have created uh, for these places. Even, uh, even aspect of uh, natural... Uh, natural landscapes like rivers and rocks and, and mountains are given meanings and names and identities and personalities and integrated into the, a larger cultural milieu. Uh, so, so what you see is a very complex, very mixed uh, places you don't necessarily see if you go to an Indian town or, or any, any, any town in, in South Asia, you don't necessarily see residential areas separated from uh, office areas, or they are separated from uh, religious areas or industrial areas. They all happen in the same place in many ways, and that that mixed, uh, mixed used, uh, compact, very connected uh, uh, creation of landscapes. Um, is has has always been a very sustainable way of living in that part of the world. Uh, although when you go there, you might be uh, overloaded with sensory information, um, and you might you might feel like that's very chaotic, very noisy, etc. But un- within that that kind of apparently chaotic nature is a very interesting um, cultural order uh, that creates a very sustainable. A shared spaces for people to live. So um, now today, um, after going through uh, a suburbanized uh, uh, creation of landscape in the 1950s, uh, the the architects and urban designers and urban planners in the U.S. Uh, are recognizing that creating connected, compact, uh, complete. Uh, mixtures neighborhoods are the are the are the future if you really want to live in a sustainable manner so this is an uh, this is a lesson you can actually learn from the uh, south asian landscapes that uh, that the, the the complexity that is maintained within within this landscape now uh, when uh, jane jacobs uh, in 1960s wrote about the um, the death of great american cities uh, one of the things that she mentioned is uh, that we need to understand what kind of a problem a city is, and she called it a organic complexity. Uh, and, and her critique about contemporary American uh, urban planning and urban design uh, was that that we try to uh, separate uh, 
we kind of kind of creates places that doesn't have this kind of complexity uh, thinking that is the best uh, way to create landscapes and 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 we are losing so much richness and sustainable aspect of a city uh, by doing that and 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 her argument was exactly uh, um, is about uh, having that uh, complex places uh, that that everybody can live uh, in a much more shared uh, way. So I think that's that's something that 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 is still there in in uh, in South Asian uh, um, cultural landscapes that uh, that uh, we can learn from. Uh, yeah, that's true. You know, I didn't think about that. So uh, I'm sure one day I'll go back to visit the Asian countries and look at it from a whole different perspective of, yeah, living with harmony uh, and how we've kind of, I don't know, that's a curious question. Uh, maybe for another book is, I wonder if European cultures uh, lived more in harmony with nature at the beginning and how they became disconnected from that. That's very possible. Prehistoric, um, uh, prehistoric Europe, um, uh, uh, very possibly was, you know, uh, centered um, on um, um, goddess worship uh, and um, God, the land is goddess. Um, uh, we do see it in, um, in uh, some places uh, in the womb, you know, caverns um, of, um, of Malta. And um, so um, slowly, I think over time, patriarchy took over and um, also um, the biblical notion of um, of uh, um, uh, stewardship kind of was um, uh, neglected, but uh, nature was seen as a resource to be exploited. Um, and uh, so, I I think with um, increasing uh, control over resources and especially mechanization and industrialization has uh, led to overexploitation and um, uh, disconnect, you know, between the cult- between culture and nature, between human beings and um, and the natural world. Um, which I think now it is time to, in the face of um, uh, climate change and um, and and how uh, as civilizations we are at risk maybe it is time to reconnect with nature in a more um uh, uh in a more in a harmonious way yeah well that's such a, a big and huge lesson uh for all of us i'm i'm in the florida keys uh here in miami and uh sea level rise is right at the uh, literally at the top of our minds <laughs> so uh yeah so can you tell me more about um Maybe a project or something you're thinking about in this book that uh, that really like explains how to do it, how uh, a particular place uh, connects people to nature. Can you give me some more specifics? In the edited volume, the cultural landscapes of South Asia. Yes, um, uh, um, we have uh, a, a number of chapters actually uh, focusing on that topic. Uh, of harmony. Um, um, uh, if I um, look through the four parts, um, I would call attention to uh, Nilan Kuri's Landscape Theater of Sigiriya. Uh, I would um, um, also uh, mm, mm, uh, uh, 
draw the attention to the chapter 11, Tourism, Liquid Modernity and Bhutanese Traditional Landscapes, um, the chapter by Kapila on um, Bhaktapur, Nepal. Um, Just pick one. <laughs> I threw you a curveball. I think this is a kind of an underlying current through um, uh, all the chapters, uh, uh, but uh, especially in part three, the intangible heritage and cultural landscapes and the four chapters included in that. And um, towards the end, uh, I have I, I write two chapters in which I talk about cultural landscape conservation and I talk about also the relationship, you know, between culture and nature and how, you know, conservation uh, programs uh, should be grounded um, in, uh, in, in field work. And in field work, usually uh, uh, unearths, you know, the local community's relationship with nature, which is very different, uh, you know, from the institutional uh, um, uh, perspective, uh, which is more infrastructure-based. Uh, Silva? Um so uh, if you need a specific example, um, uh, let me go to the the chapter that I wrote about uh, Bhaktapur, Nepal, uh, where um, how kind of the the natural landscape is has been an integral part of the cultural landscape. Uh, uh, the 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 uh, the. the uh, it, it, in the entire uh, kind of um, the, the Kathmandu Valley, uh, uh, um, the evolution of the Kathmandu Valley human habitation is also based on the way that people understood that particular landscape. Um, the um, I think I, I have a, a particular diagram given uh, in in the chapter uh, that that. Uh, that shows how uh, uh, people understood the nature in in a more religious point of view. They uh, they started in their culture, in their belief system. Um, they gave uh, various meanings uh, to the na- natural elements in the landscape. Uh, they made these landscapes into a much more divine uh, 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 geography. Uh, so, so they 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 look at the place as a something that needs to be respected, venerated, and protected, and also as a place that actually protect uh, themselves in return. Um, the the mountains are given uh, various names, and uh, and they are uh, ascribed to different divinities. Uh, they are general day-to-day life and various seasonal activities are performed in a certain way to integrate these divinities uh, into their daily lives. Their agricultural practices and the the rituals associated with agricultural practices are also uh, related to that level of understanding of the natural landscape as something uh, that gives the kind of bounty that they want to live in that place. So, so in certain ways, um, uh, historically and even today, the uh, even today with with all the modern facilities and 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 amenities uh, that people live with over there, they still uh, has a deep uh, uh, love and and a respect uh, for their natural landscape. 
and in some way that they understand that 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 their sustenance in that particular place is actually uh, related to that that natural landscape however there are certain issues going on right now in terms of uh, uh, new development activities and uh, not properly managing the waste in the area uh, so there are some level of uh, uh, pollution of the land and and the air and the water but but generally within people's minds that they um, uh, they understand that uh, the the value of the natural landscape uh, for the continuation of their uh, uh, habitation in that in that location. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, it's true. And, you know, uh, I suddenly had a thought of, you know, the um, actually I was born in Hawaii and um, their Hawaiian culture and how uh, they gave uh, great um, respect to their aina, which is their word for land and uh, their harmony of living uh, in in such a uh, an isolated part of out there in just the middle of Pacific Ocean, and how they had adapted to it and respected it. Yeah, that that's actually an interesting uh, um, observation. Uh, that uh, when we talk about cultural landscape, we are not necessarily talking about the the land, but also the waterscapes become an important aspect of it. That it's very important to understand. Uh, not only for cultural heritage conservation, but also for any uh, architectural or urban planning development, uh, to to figure it out how people actually understand their 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 natural setting, and how it has been uh, uh, been a part of uh, the the kind of creation and formation of their cultures historically and even even today. Uh, without that understanding, uh, if you really look at the creation of the uh, human habitation as a purely a technical aspect of uh, providing this number of houses uh, with these kind of amenities, you missed a, a much more important a dimension uh, through which people connect to the place. Mm. Yes, that's true. And, you know, um, I, I was kind of encouraging that with the students recently at our um Florida chapter conference, I um, engaged them, the FIU and UF students in a charrette. And it was, um, yeah, it was about uh, Madame Pelly is the volcano goddess of Hawaii. She creates the land and how uh, when she meets the sea, uh, it there's like this explosion that happens, but that's how uh, land gets formed between the volcano and the ocean um, and how interesting that is. So, uh, okay, well, I'll just, I'm going to go to another kind of favorite topic of mine. I've always kind of studied festivals and on page for our audience 159, let's go on to something kind of fun here. The festivals in Bangladesh, can you tell me more, um, a little bit about that? I know it wasn't particularly this or the section that you wrote, but, um, how does, you know, their people's love and, and, uh, wanting to do festivals affect spatial designs, um, in the landscape and, um, in the architecture? So Bangladesh is the newest country um, in the subcontinent. Um, it became a nation in 1971. And with nation building also came, you know, invention of 
um, new traditions. And one of these new traditions is the festival of New Year. And this festival um, is celebrated in Dhaka, uh, in the capital, in a very big way, but also in other smaller um, cities across the country. And the most important thing about this festival is that it um, is kind of a... um, uh, hybrid it's hybrid in nature in its sources uh, of uh, uh, of uh, of um, celebration the practices so uh, even though bangladesh is predominantly a muslim country but uh, this is a very secular festival and borrows a great deal from hindu festivals um, across the subcontinent and um, the interesting thing about the celebration of this festival is that it happens um, in uh, in the op- in the open public spaces. For instance, in Dhaka, um, the major core, urban core, um, where all the monuments are, um, it begins there, and then it is like processional, and it you know uh, winds its way down the major spine, and um, it is. Um, um it is celebrating the new year um the arrival of the spring it's also celebrating you know um the uh, um arts and crafts you know many students um and folk artists join in um then um there is um there are songs um there is uh, good food and it it is truly a public festival and it was initiated by actually a group of students um in the in the dhaka university um and then it just just, just caught on and it has become a very large uh, spectacle almost but one which is participatory in nature um and it um you know it is uh, it, it exemplifies um what is called as um uh uh, kinetic urbanism um, by Rahul Mehrotra, a Harvard professor, in that, um, that the quality of, of the urban spaces becomes very rich and intense as a result of, um, of, of activities, of people um, celebrating. And so we have, you know, the material fabric, um, and that is, you know, these are old, you know, government buildings, um, and that is uh, tangible heritage, but then the intangible heritage is that of kinetic urbanism, and that is what you know the festival brings out. Uh, Kapila, what about festivals in Sri Lanka? Um, in 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 one of the chapters, I talked about uh, a particular festival uh, in in Sri Lanka in the middle of the country. Uh, this particular city called Kandy. Um, it's uh, the it was the uh, the last capital of the Sinhalese monarchy uh, before the country went under the British occupation in uh, 1815. So uh, the, this particular uh, uh, festival has been there for thousands of years, uh, not only in, in Kandy, but also uh, before Kandy in uh, other uh, capital cities of, of, of Sri Lanka, uh, historical capital cities of Sri Lanka. So uh, this particular festival, I mean, the festival is still there. Actually, it's going right now in 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 Kandy in August. Usually, it's in uh, July August. So the, it's right right now happening in Sri Lanka. Uh, so this uh, this festival is uh, held um, to uh, to uh, pay respect to the guardian deities of the Kandyan Kingdom, our historical Kandyan Kingdom. 
and uh, uh, to pay uh, respect to the uh, the tooth relic of the historic Buddha. Now, this uh, tooth relic of the historic uh, historical Buddha was brought brought to Sri Lanka uh, from India um, in the uh, uh, in the fifth century uh, AD. And uh, uh, since then, it has been um, it has been uh, under the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, ownership uh, or the custodianship of the of the of the king of the country. Uh, although uh, Sri Lanka is not a, a monarchical uh, uh, administrative system anymore, uh, but uh, but it, it is still considered a uh, very important. Uh, uh, holy relic uh, in Sri Lanka, and uh, uh, since that that uh, uh, earlier times, um, there had been uh, an annual festival um, that uh, 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 paid homage uh, to the to the relic, uh, considering the relic uh, representing the uh, historical Buddha. And Sri Lanka is a, a majority Buddhist country. Uh, uh, so, so this particular relic and the, and this festival has been very important. And uh, the the interesting thing is that the the during the the uh, the Kandian the time of the Kandian uh, kings, uh, the the festival was actually a mili military festival. The entire uh, the city of Kandy uh, was designed historically uh, to represent. Uh, the the macrocosmic uh, uh, Candian kingdom, so the city itself was a, in a miniature rep replication of the larger kingdom, and when when this festival uh, was held in Candy historically, uh, the 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 festival will uh, kind of go around the city encompassing the entire city, uh, representing the the authority of the the king. Uh, uh, over the entire Kandyan kingdom, uh, so the the festival was at the same time a religious festival and a military parade, and this is how at that time people understood who is actually holding the authority uh, over the kingdom and what's the kind of uh, uh, the power and the authority the king had, not only militarily, economically, but also in terms of uh, spiritually, because. The king was the custodian of the holy relic. Uh, so, so uh, today, even we don't have a king, uh, people still uh, 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 have high regard for the holy relic, and because of that, a very high regard of the this particular festival, uh, the, because the festival uh, actually represents uh, the history of the country, the belief, the the, the predominant belief belief system uh, of the people of the country, and also all the various uh, cultural traditions and arts and crafts uh, of 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 the country. So it's a it's an important cultural heritage, not only because of it's a festival uh, full of arts and dance and musics. But also the way the landscape has been has been designed, uh, and how a ritual define a landscape, and also how uh, that particular ritual define a particular administrative system at that time uh, in the in, in the country's history. Oh, I had no idea. So it's interesting the social hierarchy of humans and uh, relationship to place. 
Yes, exactly, and it's all all represented uh, uh, in a one uh, one festival which has so many different layers to that. Not only religious, cultural, uh, uh, and and the idea of the cosmography and and administrative system and everything. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Well, um, I'm going to jump to a different country for both of you. So this is a fair question about the gross national happiness scale. I just thought this would be a fun question. And the Kingdom of Bhutan. Um, and how do you think this philosophy of um, social construct of they obviously cherish happiness? Um, how does that relate to their, well, we'll go architecture, we'll go all aspects of architecture, land, buildings, uh, interior, exterior. Um, how do you think in this chapter that that affects uh, their designs of their space? So uh, when Bhutan adopted this, um, uh, you know, this uh, gross national happiness scale, um, it was uh, not just, I think, um, a tourist uh, ploy, but I think it genuinely, I think, reflects in some way their own understanding of 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 uh, Bhutanese culture and um, landscape. I think has a very integral role in that because um, uh, the built environment, you know, of the monasteries um, and of uh, 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 palaces and other structures are, um, this built environment is um, not in opposition, you know, to the land, um, to the site, but it is in harmony that it, it, um, it um, kind of conforms in many ways to um, to the physiography um, and to the um, uh, natural processes, so I think that to me, it's just, uh, my view, um, and I think it's also the author's view, is that um, this really is the key to um, a way of life, uh, which is um, you know rooted um, to be in harmony, you know, with the landscape, and that is I think a cherished. Um, heritage, um, you could call it an intangible dimension of heritage, which is sought to be promoted um, in um, uh, conserving uh, the landscape and the and the uh, heritage structures, uh, and also in uh, I think uh, representing Bhutan um, to the outside world. Yeah, the, I think uh, the. Uh... Bhutan uh, has been a, some kind of an uh, hermit kingdom, kind of isolated from the rest of the world for a very long period of time. And I think uh, when the country started to open up uh, to the rest of the world, uh, I think the, the, the king of the country and other ruling elites uh, uh, recognized the fact that that uh, that uh, uh, pursuing material wealth uh, cannot necessarily um, uh, be uh, a healthy thing for a very uh, small country uh, with with a lot of natural resources in terms of its 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 um, its, its landscape. Um, uh, that it would not necessarily generate a very uh, uh, healthy society, and and Bhutan is also uh, uh, fundamentally a Buddhist country, and one of the the Buddhist kind of kind of values or, or principles or understanding is that 
that the material wealth does not necessarily guarantee your your uh, inner peace and happiness. So I think the country recognized that in a in a, in a vastly capitalistic world, that uh, pursuing material wealth uh, will not be uh, a sustainable goal. Uh, uh, especially uh, looking from their own cultural point of view, so so in in some ways that that inner peace and harmony or the the kind of na- the national happiness uh, in this case cannot be uh, cannot be attributed to uh, to a destruction of the natural environment and creation of uh, concrete jungles and 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 glass palaces. Uh, and and that that may not be the way to go, and and because of that, uh, uh, they they also realize that that the 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 historical uh, landscape, cultural landscape, and the buildings and the cities they were built uh, in 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 harmony with uh, the natural landscape. So so they made a very conscious decision. To maintain that particular balance that they created historically, uh, and and to continue that uh, practice into the future. So, if you even go today, some of even the new buildings are built based on that historical uh, 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 architectural styles and practices, and using the kind of uh, building materials that they used. So, so in some way, they're trying to. Trying to keep uh, the, uh, the the development uh, in a, a very harmonized way with the natural landscape, uh, rather than pursuing whatever you may see uh, on on uh, our posh magazines and 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 TV programs and etc. So they are creating the kind of dream that actually would be very sustainable uh, within what they have within their country. Oh. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, just uh, again, just uh, harmonizing uh, with nature might be could be a key to happiness. Yes, yes. <laughs> kind of seeing the whole book. Um, well, let me ask you, what was your favorite part about writing this book? What, uh, favorite. Um, what did you enjoy the most about your research and doing this book and editing it and all these essays and going through it? Well, I think I enjoyed uh, mostly uh, uh, working with the um, authors um, uh, uh, and their chapters on other countries, uh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and Bangladesh, um, because um, I felt that um, I've traveled a lot within in, in India, and but I'm not so familiar with other countries. Um, and uh, I um, also uh, felt that... Um, uh, working closely uh, with the authors uh, was meaningful in the sense that not only was I learning from them, but I, we, Kapila and I were shaping up the chapters um, in a way that um, the edited volume uh, became a cohesive uh, uh, statement, you know, on South Asian cultural heritage. Yeah, I, I would agree completely that the uh, most valuable part and enjoyable part was uh, working with a group of colleagues and uh, learning from their point of view and and from their uh, expertise about the uh, about the subject areas that they were 
particularly investigating and the locations and and from from their perspective we perspective understanding what's happening in each uh, society and and how each society is um, uh, working towards uh, uh, and also struggling um, various global dynamic forces and and trying to maintain a certain kind of a systemic balance within their within their cultural landscape so so that that was the most enjoyable part actually working with and learning with uh, well this uh, is a little bit them. off from the book but uh, let's tell our american audience about um Namaste and Namaskar, and because uh, this is a South Asian Indian greeting. Uh, what does Namaste and Namaskar? Uh, what does that mean to you? Uh, I use it as a greeting um, always, uh, and that is folding the hands and saying Namaste. And uh, I think the the word means uh, uh, that homage to the self to you. Um, and who's you that is a divine in you? <laughs> I think that is the ancient Sanskrit meaning. Uh, and namaskar, namaste, uh, uh, namaskaram, these are all, you know, kind of variations. Um, uh, I am not sure how uh, popular this greeting is in Sri Lanka. Um, uh, Kapila might be able to say a bit more on Namaskar, but I have always, you know, enjoyed doing this, uh, folding my hands and saying Namaste. Yeah, the uh, we have the uh, we don't have the same term, um, although Sri Lankan language is based on uh, based on uh, Indian uh, Sanskrit language. Uh, we we understand the term Namaste and Namaskar right away uh, uh, because that's that you use when you specifically uh, pay homage to the Buddha uh, as a Buddhist. Uh, or uh, 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 Hindu uh, devotee in Sri Lanka uh, paying respect to a Hindu god. Uh, the, 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 the term uh, that we actually use uh, in our language is uh, are you bo one, meaning that uh, may you have long life, but uh, the the gesture hand gesture is the same uh, hand gesture that that uh, the Indians would use uh, when they say namaste. Uh, but we we use the same gesture and say ayubhavan, uh, meaning uh, oh I like that. You have long life. Uh, so we could say this book is mm-hmm. like a I don't know if I could say it. Uh, Kapila, you have to, you have to give me that praise again. But uh, namaste, namaskar to the land and uh, and be in harmony. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, So I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, and I want to thank both of you for being here. This book is wonderful. I've really enjoyed uh, uh, reading through it. Uh, could you tell our audience, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, thank you. Um, I am working actually on a book uh, which is uh, titled uh, cultural Landscapes of India, Imagined, Enacted, and Reclaimed. I just completed the manuscript, and it is uh, being reviewed by University of, of Pittsburgh Press. I'm happy to say that the reviews are very good, um, and I'm yeah. looking forward you know, to revising it. And this book actually builds upon my uh, earlier book, Landscapes of India, but it also builds on the edited volume that Kapila and I did on Cultural Landscapes of South Asia. So um, I am glad that I've been able to continue the work um, and um, uh, using new case studies and um, 
uh, at further articulating the concept of landscape, uh, uh, drawing attention to landscape as an image, as an event, and also um, the necessity to reclaim um, uh, uh, traditional landscapes and to uh, um, uh, uh, impress upon you know my future reader that the landscape ethic uh, really can should rest you know upon age old ideas of nature veneration. Um. Uh, I just completed another edited volume uh, and uh, submitted it to uh, Routledge and uh, the book will come out in uh, in January uh, next year. Uh, the, the book is titled uh, Routledge Handbook uh, on Historic Urban Landscapes uh, in Asia and Pacific. Uh, there are about 38 chapters uh, written by uh, uh, various authors, uh, uh, in Asia and and, and Australia, uh, uh, so the, this this uh, book is about again uh, based on a, a new uh, concept that UNESCO came up with uh, for the uh, conservation of historic cities in the world, uh, understanding historic cities through a cultural landscape perspective, and and calling them uh, historic urban landscapes. Uh, Amita also contributed a chapter about Varanasi, India, uh, to this particular book. Um, and uh, I just uh, started uh, having a con- uh, conversation with uh, uh, two of other colleagues, uh, uh, Professor David uh, Jones in Deakin University in Australia and Professor Ken Taylor in the Australian National University uh, to, uh, to work on another edited volume on... Um, cultural landscapes uh, in Asia and Pacific. Um, we, we just started talking about it and I actually uh, talked to uh, Amita a couple of days ago whether she would uh, be interested in contributing a chapter to that. Uh, she said yes. Um, so that's the new project. Oh, well, so you guys uh, are just, just uh, continuing to, to grow and uh, add to our, our cultural uh, body of knowledge across the world. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> oh, I think this yes. is great for a U.S. audience, um, and uh, especially if they maybe have not necessarily traveled to South Asia. Like I said, I have, and it was wonderful. Now I'm really going to look forward to going back and uh, and seeing this with a, a different um, from a different perspective. Um, so. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope uh, this will, uh, um, you know, um, uh, generate some interest, you know, in traveling to South Asia and experiencing the cultures firsthand. Uh, well, again, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, Kapila? Uh, yeah. Um, thank you, uh, Tricia, giving us uh, this opportunity. I hope that uh, that we were able to give some idea about <laughs> About uh, it's some different idea about uh, South well, Asia. Thank you, Will. Uh, to let uh, know this this book is again it's cultural landscapes of South Asia studies in heritage conservation and management edited by Kapila Silva and Amita Sinha. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening today. This is again Trisha Kaffer with New Books in Architecture, a special mini-series in landscape architecture. And if you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.